You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. In today's message, Pastor Josh continues into week seven of our series on the Ten Commandments and preaches on the command, do not commit adultery. As we listen, may the Holy Spirit work in us to shape us more into the image of Jesus. Well, good morning, church. How are we? So how's that for a tone setter? Feel good about it? Great. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you open to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 20, verse 14, uh, and I want to, to give one more announcement and one more opportunity. Uh, I know today's subject matter, uh, although very extremely, completely 100% biblical, uh, it is a weighty one. It is going to be weighty on many levels, you just wait. Uh, but for the fact that we have some younger ears in the room that you, as their parents, you as their primary disciplers, you know whether they are ready or not to potentially take part in this conversation. Uh, so you could be in this room thinking, well, my kid's not going to listen anyway. Go ahead, Josh. Uh, I would encourage you that maybe they are going to listen. And, and here would be my encouragement as you're going to see my second grader is going to stay in here and color. Uh, and she is going to pick up on all the words and she's no doubt going to ask me all the questions at lunch today. That's fine. I think that's a beautiful thing. But if you are here today and you just walked in and you missed the first announcement, you didn't read the email this week or you didn't get it, or maybe today you're visiting and you say, oh no, what do I do? Here's what we're going to do this morning, okay? Uh, In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And it's going to be just a little bit of a lingering prayer. Uh, It is going to serve two things. It's going to ask the Lord's blessing on, on our time and his word. And it's going to give potentially you an opportunity just to walk out either that door right there or that door right there. And we have children's ministry representatives that if you have anybody up to second grade that's with you today that you think, man, maybe they need to go to a more age appropriate. And that's your call. I would encourage them to stay here. But if it's your call and if you want them to be more, in your opinion, an age appropriate uh, teaching style, then right outside those two doors is going to be our children's ministry team. And they're going to be waiting on you. And so you can drop them off with them and then ask After the service, uh, you'll go just this way to our children's ministry wing, and then you'll be able to pick them up after the service today, okay? Uh, And so as I pray, and if you feel comfortable and you think that's something for you and your family, if you would just simply go ahead and walk out of those doors and our children's ministry team will greet you, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the gift and the grace of this day. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you on the days when we wake up and we open and we read, and it is joy-filled It is opportunities for us to feel great about how you are blessing and how we are uh, leading in this life. And Lord, I I thank you that on those days we we can sip our coffee and we can just give you glory and enjoy the day. But some days, Lord, some days we open your word and it greets us like a fire. It greets us as something that is beautiful and majestic, but the closer we get, the more painful it becomes. And Lord, I know that your word tells us that you are a refining fire, that in you there is no impurities. And as we get closer to you, you are refining our impurities out. That is the process of sanctification. Everybody across this room, whether it be dealing with this subject matter today of adultery or something else, we have all fallen short of your standard. We have all experienced brokenness in our lives and do on a daily basis. But Lord, as we come this morning, we surrender ourselves to you and your word. We know that you are gracious, that you are steadfast and you are merciful. You are slow to anger and you are abounding in love and you promise to forgive for generations to come. 
And so with that, Father, we come and we joyfully open your word this morning. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Well, as we journey together this morning, and you are in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and we're going to begin there, but we are going to make our way through a couple of other passages as well. But as we go, I want to give you a word of caution and encouragement, okay? Uh, In today's sermon, you're going to hear a lot of things. Uh, It's going to be truthful and encouraging. It's going to be clear on sin and the gospel message. At times, it's going to feel exposing and painful. But if you hang in there with me, there will be a beautiful opportunity for hope and healing as we move towards our time in the end. And here's a second word of caution and encouragement this morning. Some of the words that that we're going to use, and they're going to be Bible words, they're going to potentially carry with them uh, an extreme weight for you. Some of the biblical accounts we look at today will maybe bring you back to a place that you really didn't want to go this morning. Here's the encouragement. Don't don't let the fear of those memories or allowing yourself to go back to those places in your heart and mind, don't, don't let the fear of that allow you to miss out on the beauty of the redemption that Jesus offers you today. Okay, so, so that, that is the, the word of encouragement to you. Let, let's trust the Lord Jesus to do what he always does with all that is our life to heal, to redeem, and to restore. And so if you are here today and, and you hear the subject matter, you, you maybe have heard the, the verse just read, or, or maybe you knew this, this uh, seventh commandment was coming when we started the very first one. And maybe this was on your calendar, whether it was metaphorically or physically circled on your calendar, and you knew this day would arrive at some point, here's what I would encourage you to do. No matter what your story is, no matter what your background is, if we would come open-handed before the Father and one another, and we say to the Lord, as always, our life belongs to you, it is yours. Heal what needs to be healed, redeem what needs to be redeemed, and restore, Father, what needs to be restored. I believe that posture is going to allow us to get something out of this that we never dreamt possible. Today, church, is going to be an amazing day. These cautions are not intended to scare you or deter you, but as a courtesy to you and your family as we begin to swim in some really deep, real-life waters. So with that, we're going to jump in with a reminder of the Ten Commandments and why we are here. Remember, God has just rescued, as we are reading these Ten Commandments, God has just rescued his people out of Egyptian captivity and slavery. They've been in Egypt for over 400 years. And now God has promised to send them to the land that he has created for them, the promised land. But along the way, between Egypt and the promised land, some things are going to have to happen. Number one, God is going to spend some time getting Egypt out of the people. Seemingly, that process is not a fast one. Because we're going to see from the time they leave Egypt to the time they get into the promised land, it's going to be about 40 years. Another thing that God is going to do in this in-between time is he's going to build into his people the calling that he trusted to them from the beginning. If you remember and you go back right before the Ten Commandments are given, God is speaking audibly to his people and he tells them that he is giving them a new identity and a new task. And it is twofold. They are to be a kingdom of priests and they are to be a holy nation. Holy meaning set apart, different, different than Egypt. 
And different than all the other kingdoms they're going to encounter as they move into the promised land. But the first part, I think, is the most important part for them and for us even still today. Because it's this idea of being a kingdom of priests, being a kingdom of representatives of God. Now, if you even wanted to trace this all the way back to the creation story, God creates man in his own, what? Image. That's right. And so we are indeed image bearers. Maybe you've heard it this way. God created you as an imager. One that is going to, in all we do, in all that we say, in all that we take part in, proclaim or show his goodness to those that we come in contact with. And so the thought would be that when the world sees anybody else outside Israel, outside God's kingdom people, that they are going to see who they represent, their gods and their people and their culture. But when they come in contact with God's people, the Hebrew people, they're going to see God. And what they say and what they do and how they act and how they interact and how they promise and how they keep promise. That is how they are to minister as a kingdom of priests. And so God is going to spend this time helping build into them this, this truth. What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? What does it mean to be a set-apart nation? So their time in this wilderness is going to teach them how to carry the name of the Lord their God rightly. How to be a faithful image bearer. These Ten Commandments and the other 613 laws that will soon follow are meant to do just that. The law is to be seen as a good and a gracious thing. It protects God's people. It guides God's people. That's the positive side of the law. The more negative feeling, although not negative, but it is the negative feeling side of the law, is the law is going to be an exposing thing. It continues to highlight areas in our life and how we live our life, areas and ways that we cannot keep the law or have not kept the law. That exposure in the moment does not feel good. It may feel like a negative thing, but church, it is not. It is an extremely positive thing. Hopefully, we will come to find that when the law exposes us, that that is God's grace extended to us. An opportunity to see our mistakes, our waywardness, and our brokenness. And to turn away from those things, or that thing, or that direction, and then return to God. It's another church word we use called repentance. That God in His grace brings conviction. Conviction feels rough when we experience it, but it is one of the greatest graces that God gives to His people. It is a call, sometimes gentle, sometimes not so gentle, to stop that thing and return back to Him. Because that thing's going to take life and God's going to give life. And so today, as we journey in this text, it is going to be an exposing text. And I was curious, even in my own heart this week, why do I feel even anxious presenting this text to you when I didn't feel anxious about any of the other nine? And I think as I've processed that, here's kind of where I've landed. Because the first four commands, maybe even the first three, depending on how you look at them, those are, those are vertical. That's between you and the Lord. And, and, and although I can, I can see fruits of that, that's between you and him. But it's the commands that, that deal with the one another. 
And where we live, in the context that we, we practice life together, I look around, and I don't see, and maybe it's, it's true of you, I just don't see it, I don't see people dishonoring their mother and father. Like, I just don't see it. Could be, certainly could be. I'm not absolving you from it. As we look, I, where I sit and what I do every day, I don't see a lot of people who, who actually got murdered. If you were to, to look ahead, like I'm not looking at people who, who are actively like, like stealing or bearing false witness or, or, or anything of, of, of that matter, or coveting. Like, like I don't see that in the people that I love and I've been trusted to pastor. But this one's different. Because I think this is the grace of church. This is the grace of community and knowing and being known. That even many of you have shared your story with me. And I'm so thankful for that. But part of your story deals with this. It, it lives in this arena. And maybe you haven't shared your story with me. And, and I still look around and I, I can't help but, but see statistics and see the size of our congregation and think, the people who have come forward aren't the only people who have been in this. But even still, you'll see why the angst is there, because if you find yourself not in one of those two categories, just wait. There's another one coming. But with that, I, I tread lightly, but I also tread steadfastly in these texts today. So if you wouldn't mind, let's walk together through this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. As we always do, let's, let's take the text apart with two words in view in this verse. Just two words. Lo na'af. Hebrew meaning this, never adultery. I'm going to give you two definitions today, and some of you are going to be, oh, I need you to repeat that, or I need you to pause. I'll send you notes. Definition number one. They are two. They are similar, but not the same. So if we could, just I want you to, to focus here. Definition number one of adultery is a sexual relationship between one married person and another married person that's not married to one another, okay? So some scholars have argued that this definition makes room for how some of the Old Testament patriarchs lived with multiple wives and multiple lady friends. So you could be married and step out of your marriage and be with somebody who wasn't one of your wives as long as that person that you were stepping out with wasn't married to somebody else, that technically wouldn't be adultery, according to this definition. I would say that this is an incredibly bogus definition, mostly because of how Jesus will speak to adultery as we move through the text today. But here's a side note, because if your mind didn't already go there, let me go ahead and bring it there. But I don't want you to live here for the sermon, okay? Promise? Great. Does the Bible teach that polygamy is okay? If we are looking at the Old Testament patriarchs, we just sang about the God of Jacob. Do we look at everything in his life and say that's exactly how we should live ours? Does the Bible teach that polygamy is okay and right? Absolutely not but what about the Old Testament patriarchs? Listen, church, just because they did doesn't mean we should. This is why it is important to understand prescriptive text and descriptive text. Prescriptive is something you should do when you read it, and descriptive text is something that is just being done as you read it. 
Okay? The Bible never once gives a command to take wives, plural, or husbands, plural. Never once. God's design for marriage has always been, going back all the way to Eden, is one man and one woman for life. If you wanted to go back and do a little bit more study on polygamy in the Bible, what you will find is anywhere that a man has multiple wives, the only comment the Bible ever makes is how much misery he has and how much trouble he's in. Let he who has ears, let him hear. On to the second definition, and I believe this is the right definition of adultery as we come to it this morning, is mentioned in Exodus 20. That's going to be an important caveat. Second definition, a sexual relationship between one married person and anyone else that is not the person they're married to. Okay? So this prohibition is clear and it's true. Never adultery ever. Okay? So, so that would be the low na'af. Adultery in the scripture was considered, honestly, a more greater sin than most everything else. It was considered to be a great sin, or the great sin. One of the few sins that were actually punishable by instant death if you were caught in it. Think of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. But why? Here's the question that we've got to ask ourselves as we we journey through this prohibition this morning. Why would there be such a strong punishment for this sin? Because marriage is special. Because marriage is special. Not just because two people found each other and they live happily ever after. Marriage is special because it is the best and the most clear picture that God has given to humanity to show the world what he is like. Marriage is special. Church, this prohibition isn't against having sex with someone who is not your spouse, although it is that. The principle driving this prohibition is so much more. The principle driving this is God's faithfulness. That's why when you go to a Christian wedding, the celebration comes after the vows. Hopefully, when you go to a Christian wedding, you will hear something like this. If you were to come to the weddings that I perform, this is literally what I'm going to say. I'll just interchange your name in there. Speaking to the husband, I will say this. In taking your wife, do you promise to honor her, to love her, to cherish her in sickness as in health, in poverty as in wealth, in hardship as in blessing, until death do you part? And the answer, hopefully, is yes. And then I will turn to the wife. And I'll say the exact same thing, and hopefully that answer is yes. And then they give and receive rings, and then the husband is able to to kiss his bride, and then the celebration is on. But what are we celebrating? Like, Like, what is it about a wedding? This is the craziest thing, right? And so it's almost, and if you're not careful, and I would say this is where even in today's society, we need to be incredibly mindful of what a wedding ceremony is. Because I would say that even though a wedding ceremony, just even in that moment, is a mere 10 to 30 seconds, depending on how you write it, it is the most important thing. 
about what a wedding is because you are standing before God and these assembled witnesses today and you are confessing your faithfulness to one another. Where do you think we got those attributes of faithfulness from? These are the attributes that God has and what he extends to his people. And so when we get into this marriage, what it is, it is a display that God has created from the beginning of this world to put two people together and to declare to the world that God is faithful. That in sickness is in health, poverty. It's in riches, blessing, as in struggle. That we will remain faithful throughout it all. And then once we have that moment of the exchange of rings and the husband kisses his wife and we present to them a new, new creation where, where you had two and now they are one and we present, welcome Mr. and Mrs. Joshua Hollis Braddy. It was a great day, wasn't it? It was good. <laughs> and then you walk out and that, that, that moment of that service, now I know we're Baptists, if you come from a Catholic background or Episcopalian background, that, those services may go a little bit longer, I get it. But what we really enjoy about the wedding is what happens after that owl walking. It's when everybody gathers in the fellowship hall or the, the rented venue or whatever it's going to be, and you celebrate them and life. You celebrate faithfulness, you celebrate love, you celebrate this idea that is what the picture of the Christian marriage is to be to the world. We are celebrating God's faithfulness. We are going to continue to love one another in the same way that God has loved us. And the world is going to watch and give him glory for it. Marital faithfulness tells the world of God's faithfulness. When we love each other, no matter what, when we look at our spouse on our wedding day and we say, for good or for bad, for sick or for health, if you are loaded out of your mind with money or if we ain't got a dime to our name, I'm going to love you no matter what because nothing is going to change my love for you. That message tells the world that I'm going to love you even on your worst day. I'm going to love you when you get it right and when you make mistakes. I'm going to love you when you are well and I'm going to love you when you're sick. I'm going to love you when you're youthful and I'm going to love you when you're not so youthful. I'm going to love you forever and always because that is what God is like. That is what the Christian marriage proclaims to the world. But when we commit adultery, church, we tell the world a different message. Here, here is the message, among other things. You've had a bad day today? I'm out. You've made mistakes? can't do it. You're sick and broken. I'm tired of you being sick and broken. I'm gone. You've gotten older. You can't do the things you were able to do before. I'm going to find somebody else. I may love you today, but I can't promise that tomorrow. All right, so take it all the way back. What did God call God's people to be? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That when they go and they show people who they are, they're holding up the name and the likeness of the Lord their God and all that they say and all that they do. And the very first thing that they're going to see in this culture and our culture today is our marriage promises. 
And so when we remain faithful in that marriage promise, we proclaim that God is faithful. When we step out of that marriage promise, then what we are saying is God is not faithful. God will leave you just as fast as you make a mistake. That is what adultery tells the world about God. But if that is not bad enough, here's where um, I think maybe some of the things will be triggering. So I will tread lightly, but I want to be clear. Adultery doesn't just communicate to your world. It communicates to your spouse and your kids something that is gut-wrenching. Here's what it says. You are not enough for me. You are not enough, and I'm going to go find somebody better than you. You are not lovable. This is what adultery communicates to your spouse. Adultery also communicates to your kids if you have them. Here's what it says. I don't care about you right now. I don't care about your today and I don't care about your tomorrow. All I care about is me. If Your dad, if you're the husband and you step out on your wife and you have kids, what you are teaching your kids is your life is replaceable. That she is not worthy to be loved and that promise you made was just a suggestion. Another thing that you communicate to them is that they're whoever the other one is. So if you were the dad and you stepped out on on your wife, the kids will believe that their wife has something wrong. Their their mom has something wrong with them. And I know we would never want to communicate this, but at the end of the day, what we are saying to our kids is, as we step out, we are a liar and we are a cheater. Now, I know none of those things are going through your mind when the temptation of adultery stands before you. But I also don't want you to miss what we are actually communicating to the world and the people that we love most. Can you see now why marriage is so important to God? Can you also see now why Satan hates marriage above all things? That if you want to destroy a Christian people, you don't start with the individual, you start with the marriage destroy the fabric that ties them together, the very thing that God created from the beginning that's going to declare his glory the most clearly to the world. And that's what the enemy tries to steal, kill, and destroy daily. Church marriage should be important to us. The command, do not commit adultery, is a command to honor marriage. To honor the name of the Lord your God by honoring your spouse. So let's just pause for a second. That's heavy, I know. No doubt if you have ever stepped out on your marriage and have been caught, today's sermon feels like a ton of bricks laying on you. But maybe today you find yourself, you have stepped out or you are currently stepping out of your marriage and you have not been caught yet. And this sermon feels like fire under your feet. Hang in there with me. We're almost to the good stuff, I promise. 
Maybe you're here this morning, though, and you think, I am so glad that's not me. I have never stepped out on my marriage, and I can't even really think how somebody could. Could I just encourage you also to take just a moment, breathe, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is much in the same place that we went to last week when we talked about do not murder, and, and Jesus speaks about, well, if you have anger in your heart against your brother, then that would be tantamount to murder. Jesus is going to speak in a very similar way. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. This is what Jesus says about the topic of adultery. You have heard it said, it's the words of Jesus, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who has looked at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, there, there may be a lot of analytical brains in here, a lot of lawyers in here, and you may say, well, define lustful intent for me. If you're asking that question, we're probably there. But let's define it anyway. What is lustful intent? Well, it's not, wow, that person's really attractive. Or that person is beautiful. But this is lustful intent. I see them, I want them, and I'm going to have them. Whether that is going to be in a physical sense or a fantasy sense. Jesus would say that there were people who, who would pride themselves in saying, well, I've, I've never physically stepped out on my marriage. I've never physically cheated on my spouse. And so Jesus would say, yeah, but in your heart, you were in fantasy land with other people all day long, and that is equally sinful. Typically, when we come to this verse, we run to the extreme sides, one or the other. Typically, those extreme sides, we think, well, Jesus is speaking about porn or smutty movies or, or smutty books. And I would certainly say that lustful intent is 100% attached to those things and that those things should be avoided at all costs. But lustful intent is usually attached to your daily life long before it's attached to one of those extremes. Most people don't go to porn. Most people don't run to smutty books or movies just to find lust there. Typically, it has been their everyday life and the things they've allowed their mind to wander to or their eyes to rest upon that has built up in them to cause them to run to those things to find an avenue to act out. So a lot of times, we, we want to villainize the pornography. We want to villainize the, the smutty things. Hear me out. They should be villainized. Stay away. But if all we are doing is put a checkbox saying, well, I'm not in this extreme and I'm not in this extreme, what I'm telling you and what Jesus speaks to is the heart of the matter is this deals with us in our everyday life. This deals with us while we're on this campus at church. When we allow our mind to wander and our eyes to roam and they rest on things and stay on things that have no business staying on. When our eyes are on Christ, we have strength that is supernatural. When our eyes are off Christ, we fall. 
Because we don't have time, but I want you to write down the reference, Matthew chapter 14. This really doesn't speak to this, although it does in a roundabout way. It is Peter asking Jesus to allow him to walk on water. And there's this moment, there's this storm that is raging, and Jesus is out in the water, and they're kind of scared at the moment. And Peter says, if that's you, call me out on the water. Let me walk to you. And Jesus says, well, let's go. Peter jumps out of the boat. His eyes are on the Lord, and it says that he walked on water. That's wild to me. But the Scriptures tell us that all of a sudden, Peter takes his eyes off of the Lord, and he notices the wind and the wave and the swells. And immediately he began to what? sink. Was it because the wind and the wave? No. It's because his eyes got off Christ and his power was gone. Although that has really nothing to do with lust as it was taught in Matthew 14. It has everything to do with the solution to lust today for us. As we stay focused on the Lord our God, as we stay focused on the mission at hand of holding his name up rightly, then we have the strength that we need to walk in the face of adversity all day long. But the moment we allow our eyes to drop and to look at the other things and to stay on the things they have no business on, our power is gone and we are sunk. So what do we do? Jesus gives wisdom here on what you do if you find yourself in a lustful situation. You may not like it, but the wisdom is there. Here's verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of the members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body and go into hell. Now, this wisdom may sound strange or even extreme, but it's not if you rightly understand it. In no way is Jesus advocating that you pluck out your eye and you cut off your hand. No way. What he is telling them is, whatever it takes, flee from sin. Whatever it takes, flee from sin. Flee from the temptation. If you see it and it is intriguing to you, stop looking at it. If your hand is tempted to go and take or go and touch something that is not yours, cut that hand off. Leave the situation. Don't be around it and run. As a really important side note, Jesus never says, That's just who you are. Go ahead and put the blame on somebody else. We live in an absolutely crazy backwards world that wants you to believe that your sinfulness is somehow somebody else's fault. Man, I'm really lusting after him, or I'm really lusting after her. What's my solution? Well, they need to go and put more clothes on. I'm sorry, I missed that. It said, pluck your eye out. I can't help myself. I'm just going to take what I want. I'm sorry. It said, cut your hand off. Now, that situation may have all other things tied to it, and that's a sermon for a whole other day. But your sin isn't somebody else's fault. It's yours. And so as we come to the end of this sermon on adultery, no doubt... When we get backed into a corner, the very thing that we want to do is hide and deflect. 
Well, Josh, you don't understand. You don't understand. You don't understand why I stepped out. Because she, because he, because of this situation. You don't understand what was before me. I, I don't. I just know what the promise says. No adultery ever. It leaves no caveat for anything. There's even caveats for divorce. There is no caveat for adultery. Not one. So whatever excuse you have today, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. I want you to repent of that excuse. Well, God wants me to be happy with somebody else. That is a lie from Satan. God did not create you to step out of your marriage covenant. Because it has a lot more to do with your, more than your sexual fulfillment and your happiness. To quote an author, God did not create you to be happy. God created you to be holy. That when we hold the name of the Lord our God high, we walk rightly. When we believe the lies of the enemy, and we take the bait that he's put before us, that is when we take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And we know we don't want to do that. So, one last verse today. Are you ready? This is, this is good news. You said, Josh, good news? Here it is. Go to John chapter 8. But it's only going to be good depending on how you respond. So what do we do if we've been caught? What do we do if we sit in here today and, and, and adultery is part of our story? How do we respond? Is it a death sentence? Like, like, is it one of those things where, where we've made such a grave error? Because it's, it's in Old Testament, it's punishable by death. Is this such a great sin that God cannot forgive? Well, we know the answer to that. There's no sin that God can't wipe away. That if you confess your sins to God, that he is faithful and just to cleanse you. Not just partly, not just mostly, but completely. But there's a response. Let, let, let me show you. Probably the, the actual illustration in all of the scripture that puts this command to the test in view of the grace of God. John chapter 8, verses 2 and following. Early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. So, so get, the, get the situation. They're at church. It probably is not going to look a lot like this, but just, just get the picture. People are sat. Jesus is seated, and he's teaching. It's a solemn assembly. Verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Sometimes the Bible and in, in, in translating text makes it sound a lot nicer than it was. What happened is in the middle of the church service, the religious people, of all people, the religious leaders of all people, take this woman caught in adultery. The picture here is she has no clothes on, more than likely if she had anything, she's in the sheets she was wrapped in moments before. And they grab her and they drag her through the dirt and they throw them, throw her in front of Jesus and the whole assembled crowd. Can you imagine? Can 
Can you imagine the pain of that woman? Can you imagine the horror of the room? And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. We, we just, we're not preaching this sermon. I believe they set her up. Because adultery isn't a prohibition just for women not to be able to do. So if they caught her, where'd he go? That's a whole other sermon for another day. Verse 5, this is what they say to Jesus. Now in the law of Moses, they want to get lawyered up. Now in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Verse 6 tells us why they asked the question in the first place. This they said to test him. They might have some charge to bring against him. So, Jesus bends down. He begins to write in the dirt with his finger. We don't know what he wrote. And so they continued to ask him. If you can imagine, they, they want an answer. The whole room is waiting, and Jesus stoops down, and he's just writing in the dirt. And they're, they're what do you say, Jesus? What do you say? Just writing. So they continued to ask him, and he stood up and he said, right? He didn't deny that what the law of Moses said. He didn't deny that she needed to die. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. Fair enough. You want to kill her for her sin? Go ahead and pick up the rock for the one in here who has never sinned, and you be the first one to throw it. There's a lot of speculation about what Jesus was writing. We, we have literally no idea. But I would really love to think, and this is complete conjecture, he wrote their names and the sins that they did. I don't know if that's true. That'd be really cool, though. <laughs> hey, Tom, come look. Hey, Jim, hey, right here, buddy. I, I don't know if that's true. Probably not true. I just like it. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the first stone at her. Verse 8. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the the woman standing before him. So again, of that crowd, because they're still the group watching of, of the sermon. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Her response, verse 11, She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. A lot of times we like to stop right there. But that's not where Jesus stops with this. He says, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and what? In this moment, we see Jesus offer compassion and forgiveness in a very clear direction. He was the one who could have cast the stone. He had every right. He would have been just if he would have killed her. But even in his just nature, he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we come to 
the seventh commandment. And it's mostly, mostly about holding the name of the Lord your God high, rightly. It's about God's faithfulness. Now today, like all the other commands before, we may find ourselves with a beautiful and right command, one that we desire to uphold rightly, and yet one that we have failed yet again to uphold rightly. So now what do we do? We hear the Lord's command, but we also hear his compassion. The Lord sees you. No matter where you found yourself today, if, if we have three categories today, our worship team can come up. We have three categories today. One being, you got caught. You got caught and your world has been a wreck ever since. You're in it, but you haven't been caught yet. Or maybe you just found yourself in that third category if you've ever looked at a woman or a man lustfully. It's equally, hear me out, equally as offensive as those, those categories. Equally to God offensive. So if we find ourselves there today, we come to the compassion of the Lord and we throw ourselves at that compassion, at that mercy. We hear his offer of forgiveness and we receive it. But we also, hear me out church, hear me out. In the Lord's forgiveness, we are not forgiven that we may stay in sin. We are not forgiven that we may go and continue to do life like we want to do. No, because the life that we want to do is going to kill us and hurt those that are around us. The life that we should want to do is the life that God has planned for us. So, in his compassion and in his forgiveness, hear his directive. You are forgiven, but go and sin no more. That's, that's, that's not an ultimatum. Some people would preach it that way. That's not what's in view here. It's not saying, but if you mess up again, then you're out. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you see how that almost got you killed? The next one just might do it. That's not God's plan for your life. When we step out in any kind of sin, we are settling for less than what God has for us. Don't settle for less. Settle for what God has promised. It is good and better than you could ever hope, ask for, or imagine. Don't go back to that thing. You don't have to. You say, Josh, you don't understand. You don't understand I'm around this person. All the time. They're at work. Get a new job. I'm serious. That, that would be tantamount to cutting your hand off, plucking your eye out. Because what you're saying in that moment is that drive to be with that person is far beyond what I can do. Well, remove yourself from that situation. Trust God's grace to you to allow you to, to be to be different, to be changed, not go back to that thing. You don't have to go back. And you may find yourself here this morning thinking, Josh, this is weighty. I don't know what to do. As we've talked the last couple of weeks and we'll continue with the weeks to come. You may find yourself so burdened down by particularly this commandment, this sin. And you don't know where to go and you don't know what to do. It feels like you are called to walk in this direction, but the weight that you are bearing is so heavy, all you do is sit. Sit in the sin. Sit in the mess. Jesus said, come and take my yoke upon you. His burden is easy. 
his yoke is light. Come to me and I will give you rest. And remember, if you missed that sermon, go back and go back and watch it, go back and study it. The rest isn't a break as if you don't have to deal with it. The rest that Jesus invites us into is Jesus is going to walk alongside of us and he is going to be the strength where we have none. He is going to be the wisdom where we have none. He is going to be the thing that resists temptation when we can't. And so we come to the Lord this morning just as we are completely broken and in need of great grace. So just so you hear it one more time, if you have committed adultery, that is not the unforgivable sin. Because you've committed adultery, that doesn't mean that your family is going to be forever and eternally wrecked. If you have found yourself with adultery a part of your story, here's what I would beg you to do. Bring it to the Lord Jesus and lay it down. For he is the only one that will be able to put the pieces back together. And what you may find is it will be in a way that is more beautiful than you could have ever thought to do it. Probably different than you thought. But it will be far more beautiful. And so this morning, would you receive the grace of forgiveness and restoration? I'd love to pray with you this morning. Maybe with this type of sermon, maybe you just need some time to pray. The altar will be open. Maybe you need somebody to pray with you or here. The worst thing you could do is to go into further hiding, go into further shame and guilt, and live with that cancer of a sin eating at you every day. It's time to confess and to be healed. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for today. Forgive us, Father, please, or we have not held your name rightly. in this adultery whether we have physically stepped out or we have done so in our mind and our heart we ask you God to forgive us and give us strength to walk rightly now we need you we need you more than the breath that we are breathing the food that we will soon enjoy we need you Help us to be good and faithful kingdom priest. Help us to be good and faithful a holy nation. For your glory we pray this and for our good. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your name that we pray and we now stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?